Well, um, shall we get started, Richard? Yeah, sounds good. Excellent. Well, um, Richard, welcome to um, to to today's podcast. Um, uh, uh, for those of us um, who are just joining us um, for the first time, and welcome. Uh, I'll introduce Rachel um, uh, properly in a second, but um, uh, for those of you who have been following our, our, our podcast, Richard and I are pretty excited about having um, uh, Rachel uh, join us today. Rachel's got a pretty interesting career in, in healthcare, um, and before healthcare actually, an even more interesting career. However, um, today's um, a series of, of um, uh, future in, of, of healthcare um, podcast continues. Um, and um, today's podcast, as, as, as I mentioned, and this whole series is dedicated to the future of healthcare and where we think it's going, what we think the, the big sort of trends are, but also the small trends and, and the things that really matter. Um, so before we, we do anything else, um, I'd like to Welcome, Rachel. And Rachel will tell us everything about herself, what she's been doing, and then we'll, we'll really kick things off. Rachel, over to you. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really honoured. Yeah, I'm Rachel Dunscombe. I am CEO of the NHS Digital Academy. Uh, I also lead uh, the Arch Collaborative internationally for class research. I'm a visiting professor at Imperial College London, and I'm also a non-exec on the Digital Health Society. So I've kind of got quite a good 360 view, I think, of, of the things that are happening out there, but also a huge curiosity about where healthcare is going. Uh, and so it's a real privilege to be on the po- podcast. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. Um, but no, yeah, no. Is- no, no, no. It's our, it's our, it's our pleasure. To, it's our pleasure to have you, <laughs> Richard. Why don't you kick us off with some themes for? Um, for 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 today, um, I know we you know yesterday we discussed a whole bunch of stuff, all, and and in the last set of podcasts, but um, I'll I'll let you kick us off. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Orlando, and hi, Rachel. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, <clears throat> there are some I think there's some common or emerging themes that are coming from these that have been yeah absolutely fascinating. One of them uh, is around how how we see the sort of emerging digital landscape, sort of you know, healthcare becoming closer to the rest of our life in the 21st century, how we see that addressing some of the challenges. So what I'd be interested to hear um, is how you think um, some of the some of the kind of future tech solutions, and perhaps some of the ones that we that we that we have now, will start to address the challenges that we have, particularly perhaps the challenge around workforce. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point. I, I think workforce is one of the, the pieces we need to look at. And that's a, a duality, really, of the citizens starting to self-serve, self-manage, and, and really taking control of their own um, health and well-being. And the fact that that then leads to less of a burden on the system, you know, the, the health and care systems in the world, uh, in terms of actually serving the citizens. You know, I, everyone makes the, the analogy that we now self-serve serve airline tickets and plane tickets and all those sorts of things. It's a similar place, really. And actually, I think there's some evidence out there that does prove that as citizens actually start to self-serve and, and taking control of their care, they're actually more involved in it, become more involved in their wellness. Um, and, and I think we've got a cultural shift towards this consumerization, which is being pushed by some of the consumers. I think that's, that's really healthy. But equally, I, I think we've got a whole journey to go through uh, with citizens around what their role is in health and care and wellness for the future. And that, in turn, will change the way we deliver pathways. 
be it close to the home, be it, you know, hospitals that become hyper-acute, be it that the hospital is in the home, which is, you know, very much what's uh, what's coming. And, and certainly with the Internet of Things, I'm seeing pathways now actually being put into the home. For instance, the pathway that I worked on at Salford for transplant, where we were actually getting diagnostic put in the home, and they were going straight back into the hospital systems. So I, I think we are still in some ways constrained in terms of what we think hospital care is or, or you know, what uh, uh, long-term conditions mean. And I think we're going to see a real unconstraint of that thinking that will remove geography and, um, you know, certain human processes from today's world. Um, and when you do work with people, you do find that their thinking is quite constrained by today's buildings and today's um, sort of parameters. And what interests me is how do we get people to work on the future models of care in an unconstrained way? And that, that's a question I'm still in the process of answering. No, 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 no. That, that, I, really, I, really, that, no, no I really like that. And then for those of you, you know, sort of, um, uh, listening to us today, um, if, if you know, our sound quality doesn't sound as, as we normally have it sounding, it's simply because we've had to um, patch Rachel and she's moving around the country doing some really great evangelism for healthcare. So we, we have to get it where we where we can get it. So apologies for that. And um, Richard, just to touch on some of that. Um, that's really, well Richard, what do you think what do you think of what do you think of what Rachel said? Um, yeah. I've got some um, I've got some views on that. Yeah, so I think um I think that self serve point is is really interesting and, and really powerful. And I you know it's my sort of Perhaps a personal view, but I, I I do wonder, and in some respects hope that yeah, there have been other examples of of, of how technology that's enabled self service and all kinds of other aspects of our life has sort of unlocked the um, the fear of interacting with technology and releasing, if you like, releasing data and and feeling more comfortable with that. Um, but I I wonder if if that's something that the the yeah, I mean, that you'd agree or disagree with, Rachel? Do you think that there's a potential there for it to allow people to be, you know, a little safer with their with with it, sharing their data and being living more life online? Yeah, I think so, and I, I think we've got, uh, you know, the banks have done a good job of this um, in the main. And, and first of all, I would caveat that I believe digital can increase inclusivity, and I'll come to that in a minute. So we're not talking here about excluding people who, who can't use digital, that, that it's, you know, we, we need to deal with that appropriately. But actually those people that are able and willing to use digital, I think we can build that confidence. Um, and the confidence is, is about the give and the get. It's about the convenience that you get. It's about the ability to be assured that, you know, you, you have a unified record that can be taken to any, you know, uh, place that's needed if you're on holiday if you're traveling whatever else it's also the ability to um, you know actually become part of your own care and wellness team and that's something that we've really found in long-term conditions that is very important and without a digital platform you know you can't really fully contribute to your own health and wellness on a paper-based uh, you know uh, arena because it's not real time and um, you know we want people to be we, we want people to, to really be able to own their care. I'll give you an example, actually, that renal pathway I man uh, mentioned earlier. Um, the vast majority of renal transplant patients or, or dialysis patients cannot work because of the, the burden of care. The amount of hospital appointments they need to go for tests, the amount of time they need to spend present with clinicians. And actually, if we start to dismantle bits of that that doesn't need to be there anymore, we're giving them back quality of life. So actually, 
we, we found for long-term conditions, they do embrace it. And in, in that case, it was around about 87% of the pathway with an average age of 60-something that, that embraced that home-based digital pathway. But the inclusiveness bit, I think um, we need to segment our, our citizenship and our, our uh, patients because what's happening here is we have some that are really, really willing, some that will, will be willing, but equally on the opposite end of it, um, we have people that have got multiple complex needs, you know, that have had strokes, who have had um, multiple uh, reasons why they cannot use digital. So, you know, I bring up the stroke because my dad had two strokes and he had four different lots of cancer. And I, I was very aware that digital would not have been, you know, appropriate for him. And what we need mm. to do is work out a more personalized intervention. So actually that the digital itself can free some people up to, to self-care and self-manage, which gives us clinician time to focus on those people that need more intense interventions. So I think we're going to get down to you know, I, I always say N equals one. You become a patient of one because we'll have so much data <laughs> about you and, and, yeah. and we will personalize your interventions. You're very unique, right? Um, so we're all an N of one, but to a degree that will be true. And um, the N of one of somebody that would have been like my dad would get, you know, hands-on care with speech therapy and the next thing. Whereas me, you know, I'm diabetic. I'm perfectly happy to look after myself and put my data in unless there's an exception. So, um, I think we just have to be very, very careful to what equitable, um, especially in language, uh, you know, in, in barriers to actually engage in digital, make sure that we have the appropriate analog uh, interventions for people or translated interventions as well. I think I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I suppose um, three questions on that or, or three points for, 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 for this discussion, right? It's um, and, and we, we spoke about this with a few of the other guests that we've had on on, on this series. And who's doing it really? Like it's so it's so fortuitous that you would have you know, kind of brought that up because um, that wasn't one of the things that we had on our sort of list of things that I, I thought you might brought brought up because we spoke about it with, with a few others. But um, it's it seems to be a recurring theme. Right, we might have to change this um, this podcast series to um, to do sort of. Um, uh, uh, giving patients more power or something like that but <laughs> yeah. it's, it's coming it's coming <laughs> exactly <laughs> but who's doing it who's doing it um well now rachel that's the first the second one um, uh, how i see it in, in sort of this way you've got your zero to 16 year olds your 18 to 20 or, or, or your 16 to 21 year olds your 22 to 35 you're, you're, you're 36 to, to 45, um, and then you've got a kind of another bracket there, right? Mm. Um, and I imagine that each category of those patients will interact with, with, with technology, will have a, a thought about their own care, will have a financial sort of um, uh, uh, constraint um, on how they, they approach care um, and, and all that sort of stuff, you know, at, at an individual level. Um, who, who's doing this right for everyone so far? Or even, I'm not sure I know that everyone's doing this right, actually. Um, who's, who's furthest ahead on the journey? And what do you think the, the, the you know, the, the sort of um, almost an, uh, uh, nirvana that you've painted um, just now, when do you think some of that will become a reality versus, um, versus not? And it, I'm curious to know a bit more about your thoughts on that. So yes, in essence, who's doing it well? Um, this is just happening in pockets at the moment, and I'll you know give you a view of, of things that are happening that are exciting. So um, I find patients know best, 
is really exciting. That's aggregated data for patients, you know, in their own domain from the NHS. I think that gives them power. It's got real possibility. Uh, I was very lucky, obviously, to, to be in the leadership at Salford, where we did, you know, home-based pathways. We did a lot of Internet of Things work. We were, you know, using wearables, uh, widgets, gadgets, badges, whatever else. There was a lot of, of cool stuff there. Uh, adopted and you've obviously got the Apple Watch which is you know getting traction in the US as a medical device uh, the same as you know Fitbit um, and we're seeing, we're seeing what I call a foundation being built so standards are being put in place people are certifying medical devices people are, are starting to join the dots in a way that can construct something I, I think the biggest blockage not just in our system but in um, the wider world is the incentives and I think as soon as we get towards uh, integrated care and accountable care organizations organizations you know incentivize to keep people aware and at home and mobile we'll see more of this happening because it will change the structure uh, around sorry just just to, to, to hop in there and I I I remember really really quick story. Right, I remember um, I was uh, considerably younger. Um, I can tell you that much. Um, uh, when you know a sort of a reporter reached out to me to say, "What is your opinion on um, back then the the health secretary's um, drive for a pillar NHS?" Right. And do you think it could be delivered by 2018? And 2018 was probably you know, <laughs> six years, right? Yeah. Six years away yeah. from, from, from it. And I thought in my mind, right, I thought, well, um, I'm not allowed to swear on these podcasts, so you know, I'm swearing my head. But I thought, um, but you, I thought yeah, that's thought, one of my pet peeves as well. I thought, I was very young and naive, right? I thought definitely, you know, a health system whose budget um, is 160, and back then it was higher, 116 billion per annum, with a population that they serve of 60 something million people. One of the only most unique systems of its kind. Of course, we can get to uh, a paperless um, system by 2018. You know the rest of that story. So, so for me, the real, the real sort of, um, as I listen to this, right, because this is, you know, as, 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 as Rich and I said, sort of a debate um, or at least a discussion, right? But it, it, um, it feels like a lot of things. There are, as you mentioned, a small pocket of, you know, really um, great philosophers, a better word, disruptors, right, who want to see change happen. Um, and it's almost, you know, like back in the, 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 the kind of Luddite era, where um, you know, no one wanted to embrace um, technology, right? It, it feels to me like three, six, five, a decade um, feels you know, like a very short period in which we can get this to happen. Do you think that that's too long? Do you think that, how, how long do you think it might take us to get to a, a, a sort of an, uh, an environment where at least, you know, let's say 25% of this country embraces this way of, 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 of managing care? So I think technically we can do it, but I, I think it's aligning the governance of the system, right? I, I think, you know, commissioners, policy, all of those things, I think they are the slow part of, of this. And to come back to what you said, yes, digitizing paper is fine if you want to replace paper, digital paper, but actually our data is data for life. 
that that's my favorite mm. phrase at the moment data is for life right everything that you have recorded when you're born could have a bearing on on you know your later care did you go into NICU did you have breathing difficulties you know those things are, are all important right the way through your life a cumulative uh, sort of message through that information um, about your health and care and really what we haven't done is honors that what we've done is we've, we've locked away data in systems we've created a technical debt for the NHS by actually having lots and lots of tactical systems data in different formats that can't interoperate safely that is standardized um, and I, I think we need to grab the ball by the horns on this one and to a degree some of those, those organizations that are more greenfield may find it easier to get to that end game because they don't have to then you know um, transform or translate the data out of you know, formats that, that um, are bespoke to systems. So I'm a big fan of codifications, Nomad, I like OpenEHR, I like, you know, uh, all of the, the interoperability standards like FHIR. I think these things are part of our future. But what I would say is I think a lot of people are naive. Um, it, 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 you know, it runs on us at some point that actually a piece of data needs to, to actually go through your record for life, especially in this day and age. And um, I, I think we need to be architects in some places and in other places. We, I, I, I've been toying around with this concept of kind of enterprise architecture for data, right? Which is about enterprise architecture for, you know, kids, for yeah, infrastructure. Yeah. Enterprise architecture for data uh, based around an individual for life. And when you look at a locality, we may have, uh, you know, say one pathway for, you know, ophthalmology running from one trust and, and cardiac from another and cancer from another you know we're specializing now so that we can do things at scale and, and safer how does that data for them and for me yeah I, I think this is all possible but um i think we all need to go on the same page first and that's partly what i'm trying to do with the academy is to have these bigger debates but that's going to take the time i don't think it's actually with good technology it, it's probably uh, a matter of knowledge leadership and to a degree resources to do this. Mm, mm, mm. Well, well, Richard, I know you've been silent. <laughs> what, what, what have you so been So fascinating, Rachel. I, there's a point that I'd like to pick back up on as well. And I, 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 I wonder if um, you touched on on Apple and some of the other, some of the some of the, some of the large large players in the rest of our life, and I, I sort of scratch my head a little and wonder if maybe the maybe the bigger disruption will come from from those kind of sources where actually they do pull together all of those data sources. Now, how, how comfortable we all be with that? That's a question that's sort of out there, but but I, I I'd welcome your thoughts as to whether that's something that uh, I know obviously they're doing work in AWS R two so. Yes, and, and you just need to look at open banking to see what's happening in other sectors. And indeed, not in the UK, but in Europe, I'm aware of some banks that are setting up lifestyle platforms that you can put your health and wellness data in along with your financial data, right? I think that's cool. the direction. Yeah, I think it's the direction we're going in. I think you're going to end up with a trusted party who will aggregate your data for you. And I'm not saying that's any of the traditional players. It could be, I don't know, I just said I'm diabetic. It could be diabetes. Hey, it could be, I don't know, anybody. Oh. But um, I think we're going to get a set of interactions to trust health, you know, that's probably stuff to do with our children and things like that. Um, and, and I think that's where it's going to go. Who's going to be your kind of, you know, life body in terms of a, an aggregation platform and value add? Um, 
open banking has been really revolutionary and you know there is a great parity between uh, health and finance and I, I think we might see some of the emerging space being partnerships between uh, tech companies and finance companies uh, those mm-hmm. sorts of things that's really where it's I, going um yeah definitely if I, if I didn't know better i would say i would say rachel, sorry, Richard, I would say rachel is um probably gonna invent a bank soon right she's given us a no i'm sorry let me see a bit ago um look that's not yeah, I was I was recently I was recently in conversation with um, uh, with someone working in uh, in for a very large uh, UK based insurer, uh, and hearing some of their some of the some of the ways that they were trying to trying to sort of pull down the front end questions that they were posing to the consumer to a very small number, but we're using tons and tons of data behind that. So you know Google Maps and all kinds of stuff to be able to understand everything about the risk profile. Of those individuals, but really they needed very little um, input from from the person themselves, and so that you know again as an example, again perhaps I feel a little uncomfortable about that, where that stuff is is very much happening and is very much part of our lives. Those two things around insurance and health data join up is the bit I guess that would leave me feeling a little nervous, but. Um, but but, but again, uh, <laughs> we're all being profiled constantly by a postcode. You know, uh, the big uh, credit rating agencies will have all sorts of vectors on you, um, even down to the likelihood of using alcohol and, and other substances by postcode, right? Um, and so your your insurances are going to go up and down based on where you live, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in the academy, we teach you about ethics. And I, I think we need to make sure we at every step check what we are doing ethically. Um, you know, we, we cannot end up in a, we are, a, you know, a healthcare system that ensures that everyone is looked after. We cannot get into a position where we absolutely jeopardize the, you know, the basis of what we do as a country. Um, and having worked as in financial services with underwriting on life insurance and health insurance and critical risk and automating the, the algorithms, the actuaries, which was, you know, what I was doing probably 15 years ago. I, I, I have some real ethical questions about how we move forward on this. But I guess there's ethical questions about what they do today based on our postcode. You know, um, yeah. uh, there's, there's, there is an argument here that actually, um, you know, if we choose to contribute to wellness, all of us, that that, that could help. You know improve outcomes for everybody, improve premiums. But I, I, I do think, you know, more haste, less speed on this. We, we should go into it right yeah. and make sure that we are looking at the ethical yeah. concerns because there are risks, big risks here. And, you yeah. know, as with a long-term condition, I, I very much feel that when I try and get holiday insurance. But even though I know that, you know, I, I, I've probably had one day off six or ten years, you know, I'm not an ill person, <laughs> but you get labelled with, with this big genetic yeah. 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 No, no. I, I can see. I, we'll talk about that offline. Sure, yeah. it's, it's it's so true. I know we're getting um we're getting sort of close to the 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 um the end of the podcast. But I've, I've got a few more things that I I wanted to um I wanted to get Rachel's take on. So one um uh um you mentioned you know earlier on the the, the podcast, which I think it's probably a proxy for um uh, self management, but um. 
uh, you mentioned home care, and and there's so many kind of facets to you know home care at the moment where there are people, large corporates who provide, or small firms who provide and uh, team of nurses, etc., to support you um, in being able to kind of manage care at home. Also, there's kind of the, the self-managed bit, there's the preventative bit, there's so many spectrums to it, or, or so many layers to that 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 that, that, um, that topic, right? What, what my question is. What was your, your, when you think of home care, what, what do you think about? And that's the first one. Secondly, um, when we kicked off, we talked about sort of um, uh, 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 staffing or workforce shortage, which is fortuitously, again, one of the topics, you know, um, that we want to cover in, in, in this series. Um, and yesterday, or, or, or I think a few podcasts before, we talked about um, the, the, the reality of, um, there being less doctors um, uh, and and less nurses and growing, you know, um, or churning them out is kind of slowed down, right? And and even mm-hmm. that profession, and people want to work in very different ways. So, how do you see? Do you see a kind of a variation of of that being 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 um, an approach to solving um, uh, uh, the challenge of workforce, or, or what does it look like? And then, you know, going back to home care, what does home care mean to you? Okay, so home care really is anything that's proven intervention that, in you know, reduces readmission, improves outcomes for people with conditions who are in the home, right? Um, and the reason I say this is I've worked with the sector as well as, um, you know, private organisations and the NHS on, on home care. And I, I look at the work that, say, HUK did, with their took-up service and their silver fridge service, which reduced emissions. Um, and I, I think we're going to find more and more about the social things that we can do around these citizens um, to improve their uh, ability to stay independent at home and stay well at home. So home care for me is, is not just the traditional nursing going in. It's actually uh, much wider and it, it's also an MDC approach. And potentially, uh, I'm liking what I'm seeing with some of the smaller um, home care organizations who are getting digital on this, where they're allowing people who, um, you know, work away uh, and their parents are remote to them to, to be able to get a note just to say, visited your mom today, blah, 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 you know, she's all good. Um, but th- those sorts of things allow the, the family to remain as part of the caring team, even though they're remote some of the weeks, say, uh, really helps them. It, it's been interesting listening to some of those stories. So I don't rule out any, any uh, intervention in her yeah. In a world where tucking up and filling the fridge is effective, you know, equally, um, we might find, I don't know, giving a, a sort of, uh, you know, a Reiki or, or you know, whatever, just some kind of, you know, uh, social contact, uh, a nice um, sort of contact. Maybe keep people feeling they're good at home. Maybe the social contact, it may be other aspects. And so I think we need to get this balance of social and healthcare. Um, you know, we need to work on it and it being a continuum, not, nece- not necessarily nursing or a social worker. It could be something completely different from the third sector, you know. It's, it's, um, so for me, yeah, that makes you sense. know, that makes sense. unconstrained, as we said earlier, I'm unconstrained in my thinking about what home care is. All I know <laughs> is that, that I've been surprised by some of the things. One model I saw was actually bringing dogs around to people's hands to pet. It was improving oh, the wow. outcomes for charity, right? So, so I, I think we've got to we've got to open our minds and look at the mix of social and healthcare we need to put around 
the N of 1 again, right? So uh, whatever your N of 1 means. Um, yeah, so so that that's my, my kind of home care. And the next question. Hmm. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you need me some of this one. That's the question. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I promise. <laughs> You know, and it's not just it's health, social, it's all sectors. It's, um, all right. Companies like Uber, Deliveroo, et cetera, uh, succeeded, um, whatever that means, Lyft, et cetera, um, for a reason, right? And, yes, and the same people at a different skill level um, in this generation having the same sort of um, emotional um, and, and, and kind of yeah. taking stock of life in, a, in the same way. So, so I can't believe so, it won't apply to healthcare. So I've got a very, again, more high speed on this one, and I'll tell you why. I was talking to a GPs that actually work for, uh, or have worked for, one of the big um, online GP services. And they were talking inclusion of don't know. So basically, you know, they, they would ask the patients their history, but quite often the patients wouldn't give them the full history or know the full history. And, and because there wasn't the context and the full interoperability across the system, they felt a little bit distanced that they weren't getting the full information from patients, in particular those with, with, with complex needs. So, um, you know, the, the future of the workforce, I think where people have got very straightforward needs, it's fine to use things like telehealth. It's fine to have you know, um, doctors using remote services, you know, a pool of doctors, if you like. Um, and so, I mean, we do that today to do with our nurses, we smart route them with a company called Malinko in, in Manchester. And that, that does really nicely. So it, it, it um, you know, it sends nurses to the place of need at the same time and tracks them safe. So those sort of concepts do work. But um, it comes back to what I was saying about segmenting the patient base and on what are the appropriate interventions. Now, I think if we do get into the point where we're um, using health and remote services, you are going to attract those people that are sort of retiring or on, you know, paternity break or have got children. Um, do odd hours here and there, and I think we will be able to bolster our workforce in that sense because it will be more flexible. I've already seen that with the radiologists that we've enabled in the north with home reporting mm. stations. They'll do some extra hours. They don't necessarily have to travel every day and so get a bit more of that discretion. Um, I think we will end up with algorithms that, that are safe and, and effective and, and proven actually um, fast-tracking through this work as well. So, you know, um, for instance, really nice piece, uh, having worked on visual pathology, the pathology samples are huge numbers of, of slices potentially where the computer can look through all of those and pinpoint for uh, a pathologist and actually, you know, that will become more effective at actually um, diagnosing cancer and, and understanding where that cancer is. And so I think the algorithms can speed up uh, clinicians' sort of pathway. Um, mm. I think it can also help them uh, with, with guides as to, as to, you know, what can be done. And so really low-hanging routes, it, it will be... Um, you know, we'll be taking out the, the effort of doing that. And actually, because clinicians like working on the, their license, they want interesting stuff, like paperwork or... Uh, exactly, exactly. Button. That's good for them, that there will be. And so actually, we're, we're going for perfect storm in some places. 
where we don't have enough resources. So, you know, raising suggestions from areas, modality is going up 10% a year, and uh, you know, they they under recruiting by 6% a year. That's a perfect storm something having to give, i.e. perhaps the machine, you know, taking out the very obvious diagnoses. Um, so for me, yes, I think it is really going to help our workforce for the future. Um, and actually that, that lack of ability to actually fill a clinical role combined with the capability, I think it, it's that perfect storm. But I, I think we have to be very cognizant of what we're putting in and clinical safety has to be considered. So we, we can do these things. Um, some of them are really, really good, but um, we need to consider clinical safety. And as I've said before, we also have to consider, do we know enough about the, the citizen or the patient? We have enough information. We need to push on the interoperability because much of what we want to do for the future needs safe, clean, real-time data um, because you can't run algorithms over nothing. Um, can't safely run algorithms over partial data in a lot of cases. So I, I, I think a really essential foundation to all this is our interoperability um, and standards as well. Uh, that's that's what will drive this data economy, will help our clinicians uh, and change the workforce. Um, I love to it. <laughs> working yeah. at the top of the <laughs> I love it. Richard, I know Richard and I have hogged today's session, um, um, and I know we're now out of um, time. Is there anything else that you you wanted to kind of add to, to wrap us up? And um, we know that we've got to get Rachel onto a train and off to her next yeah. engagement. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Anything from you, Rachel? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, no, we're keen to see what people think about um, about the, this podcast and uh, further the debate. So uh, my Twitter handle is at UK Penguin if anyone's got any comments. <laughs> Bye. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thanks for your time. Thank you.